Amen. This morning we're still talking about little G gods. So far we've talked about children, love, money, success, and power. How each of those things can become an idol in our lives. Next week we're not going to talk about a specific idol or a specific little G God. We're just going to sort of wrap things up thinking about how we get rid of these things in our lives. But this morning we're going to talk about one last specific idol that is all too common for people. It really doesn't matter where you live in the world. It doesn't matter if you live in the United States or outside of the United States. But it's certainly one that we struggle with on different levels here. And that is the little g-god of country. The little g-god of country. And let me just say this at the outset. The little g-god of country may look a little bit different for some of you than it does for others of us. Others of you may think about your country as it is now, as you experience it now, and that may be an ultimate thing in your life. And you need to deal with that little g-god. Others of you may say, the country that I idolize is of yesteryear. It's something that I look back to. It's something that I remember from the good old days, and I just wish we could go back there. And in your mind, you have the mindset is of if we could just go back to what we used to be, then all of our problems would go away. That's not the truth. Problems won't go away. It's an idol that you need to deal with. For others of you, it's not so much your country as it is now or your country as it used to be, but your country as you wish it would be, something in the future that you're looking to and longing for, saying, if we could just make these changes and end up like this, then everything would be right. And we wouldn't have all of these issues that we're dealing with today. So we're going to talk about the little g-god of country, and you do the heart work to examine how does this operate on my life if, if this is an issue in your life. And I'll just acknowledge by saying this is, in our day and age, in our time, a hot-button issue. People have very strong feelings about this. And over the last months and years, we've seen protests about various things related to our country. We've seen marches related to various things about our country. We've seen people fight about the national anthem and have very, very, very strong opinions about that. And so I want to give you two sort of encouragements maybe at the very beginning or two disclaimers that sort of set the stage for what we're going to talk about. One is that we can disagree as followers of Jesus. We can disagree about political things without being disagreeable. It is possible. And I know that you don't see that modeled a whole lot in the United States of America. And I know there's a lot of people out there on the left and the right who sort of want to align religious views and following Jesus with a particular political ideology. And I'm just telling you, you can follow Jesus and disagree with other followers of Jesus about politics without being disagreeable. And there's biblical proof for that. It's not just me sort of fantasizing or hoping or wishing. There's biblical proof. When Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles, out of the 12 that he picked, one was a zealot and the other was a tax collector. Politically, they were on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. They hated each other. They would have loved to have killed each other, and they both find themselves following Jesus together. It would be like asking a, a radical libertarian to hold hands with a socialist and to get along. And Jesus looked at both of them, and he said, get along. 
You're both going to follow me, and I'm, both gonna, I'm gonna use both of you. So we can disagree without being disagreeable. The second thing, as we talk about the little G God of country, I just want you to know that I do love our country. I do love the United States of America. Do I think that we're a perfect country? No. Do I support everything that is done or legislated in the, in the name of the United States of America? Of course not. Am I aware that we have issues in our past that are real, significant issues? Absolutely. But I do love our country. There's no other place in the world that I'd rather live. And if the guys in the sound booth, they're not going to do it, but if the guys in the sound booth queued up a little bit of Lee Greenwood this morning, I'd be the first one to get a little quiver in my throat right here. Just think, oh, Lee, sing it, Lee. I'm with you. I love the United States. I can tell you the last time we went to Kenya, I had a little trouble with my plane ticket coming home and uh, basically got to the airport in Nairobi at the end of a trip and I was ready to be home and they said, you're not going home, bub, because you didn't fly the right schedule and you didn't meet this earlier flight. You're not going anywhere. And I promise you, the one thing I wanted for Lee was for Lee Greenwood to just swoop in and save me and say, let's go home to the United States. I'll get you home, buddy. I just wanted to come home. And I do love this country. And I'm proud to be an American. But I also realize that for many of us, whether it's a country we remember or a country we experience now or a country we wish we would have in the future, country can very easily go from a good thing to an ultimate thing. So let me give you four signs in your life that country may be a little g-god that you need to deal with. Number one, you value your earthly citizenship more than your heavenly citizenship. If that's you, then this is a little g-god you need to deal with. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 13, says that part of living a life of faith is acknowledging that we are strangers and aliens on this earth. This is not our home. This city, this state, this country... This is not where we belong. And Hebrews 11 describes people of faith holding on to that conviction that we're strangers and we're exiles here. And so you just need to ask yourself the question, which do I value more, my heavenly citizenship or my earthly citizenship? Now, you know the right answer, so that's an easy question for you to answer right now. It's easy for you because of the way I've framed it to say, okay, I know that this one is supposed to be more important than the other one. But maybe you should ask the question this way. What moves your heart more in your emotions? The symbols and the songs of the United States or the symbols and the songs of the kingdom? Which moves you more? Which stirs your emotions more? Or maybe we could say this. At what do you become more agitated and irritated and upset? People assaulting and attacking and blaspheming the United States or people doing those things to your king? Which one troubles you more and upsets you more? Which citizenship do you value more, earthly or heavenly? Sign number two, the power and the prosperity of your nation is an absolute. It's the highest. Nothing tops it. The one thing you want more than anything else is for your nation to be more powerful and to have more prosperity regardless of the effects around the world, regardless of the cost to other people. If that's an absolute for you, there's a problem. 
And maybe you should just stop and ask yourself, because again, at this point, you know the way to answer the question. If I say, is the power and prosperity of your country an absolute, you know you're supposed to say no. So maybe we just think about it this way. Are you more troubled, are you more disturbed by the direction our country is headed politically, or are you more troubled and more disturbed by the direction our country is headed spiritually? And your answer may be, well, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Those things are connected. And I understand there, there may be a connection on some issues. But which one bothers you more? That your country may or may not be going to hell in a handbasket or that more and more people with every new generation are not going to church. Sign number three. You believe your country is the only hope for the world. Politicians sometimes like to refer to the United States as a city on a hill. They're using a biblical allusion from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus talks about not hiding your light and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so this has been done by both parties. In the 60s, it was JFK that compared the United States to a city on a hill. And in the 80s, it was Ronald Reagan. So you got both sides of the aisle there referring to the United States as a city on the hill. And look, you can go back to those speeches and the context, and I think I can understand what each of those men were probably trying to say in the role of the United States in the world. Probably don't have a a big bone to pick with either of them using a biblical allusion. But let's be clear about this. Let's be really clear. Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about a city on a hill, we all understand he's not talking about the United States, right? We're clear about that. He's talking about his people, his followers. And they come from every tribe and every language and every nation and every people and every family on earth. And in the end, when all of those tribes and families and peoples and nations and languages stand together before the throne, no one's going to be waving an American flag. No one's going to be waving a Kenya flag. No one's going to be waving a Canadian flag. Nobody waves those anyways, but nobody's going to be waving a Canadian flag. There's going to be no flag waving. There's going to be bowing before the king. If you believe your country is the only hope For the world, there may be a problem. Here's some questions to think about. Over the last few years, it's been interesting politically over the last few years, right? We can all agree on that. Have you spent more time attacking and defending politicians than trying to win people to the kingdom? What has dominated your thoughts in your conversations in your Facebook posts? Have you spent more time over the last year or two thinking about how a particular group could win an election, or have you spent more time thinking about how we could win the world for Christ? If you really believe that the United States, or whatever country you call home, is the only hope for the world, you've taken a good thing and allowed it to become an ultimate thing. One last sign, you believe other cultures are morally inferior to yours. Morally inferior. Look, when you travel outside the United States, you realize that other people don't think like we think. They don't do things the way that we do them here. And sometimes we do things better than they do. And let's be honest, sometimes they do things better than we do. And sometimes it's really neither here nor there, better or worse, it's just different. But if your mindset is that my culture, my society, my country, we're the way, the right way, the only way, and we're morally superior to everyone else, 
you've allowed country to become a little G-God in your life. So this morning we're going to talk about Jonah. And if you have your Bible, you're going to need to look in the book of Jonah. It's a very short book. It's a hard book to find. So if you don't know where Jonah is, just go to the table of contents and find the page number. There is no shame in using the table of contents. That's why it's there. Find the book of Jonah. Jonah is a man who struggled with several little g-gods, one of which, maybe the biggest of which, was country. When we think of Jonah, most of us think, oh yeah, he's the fish guy. He's the guy that got swallowed by fish. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. Or maybe for some of you, you think, oh, Jonah, he's the guy that was like the missionary, right? God sent him to be a missionary. Those are the first two things that come to our minds usually. But I'll just sort of steal my thunder this morning and say to you that the book of Jonah is not just told to entertain children. And it is certainly not told as an example of a great missionary. It's told so that you and I would examine our hearts and think about the little g-gods in our lives. Jonah had multiple little g-gods, but the one we're going to focus on is his country. The first thing that you need to do, you found the book of Jonah, okay? Just stay right there. We're going to get there in a minute. First thing you need to do in your mind, or maybe you jot this down on paper, is just to realize that the first time you, you read about Jonah in the Bible is not in the book of Jonah. Like if you're going through looking for stories about Jonah, we all know the book of Jonah, but there's another story you really need to know, and it's super, super short, but you cannot understand the book of Jonah if you don't understand this short story. And so I'm going to put 2 Kings 14 on the screen. This is what it says. He, and he is King Jeroboam, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. All that makes perfect sense, right? You know where all those places are. You know who all those people are. Here's the deal. There was a king in Israel, and his name, I put it in here for you, is Jeroboam. He was a rotten dude. He did not love the Lord, and he did not lead the people of Israel to worship the Lord. And despite his wickedness and his evil, God called the prophet Jonah, which one? Well, the son of Amittai, the guy from Gath Hefer. That's the Jonah we're talking about. And he sent Jonah with a word from the Lord to this wicked king, and the word from the Lord is, look, wicked king Jeroboam. You need to go out and fight this battle and take back this land that had been, had been lost in battle by Israel to their enemies. This place right here, the border of Israel from Leho, Leboamah to the Sea of Arabah. You lost that in battle, in battle. Go out and fight and take that land back. So you just got to understand, this is Jonah's first assignment. Go to your king. And even though he's a wicked king, you need to tell him to go out and fight a battle. This is the word of the Lord. And even though the king is wicked, God's going to use this king to restore the border of Israel. Meaning, God's going to use this king, this wicked king, for the peace and the prosperity of his people. This message that Jonah delivered to Jeroboam was in the national interest of Israel. He got to be the good news prophet. Now, 
What you learn, if you read through the Bible, is that is at the exact same time Jonah is going, and Jonah's bringing this good message, right? You need to go, and you need to fight, and we're going to take this land back. This is the word of the Lord. God wants us to do it. At the very same time, God was sending other prophets, prophets like a guy named Amos. And Amos didn't have anything good to say to King Jeroboam. Amos's message is, you are a wicked man, and God is going to judge you, and you need to repent right now. So God's sending one group of prophets to say, you're a sinner, you better get this stuff in order. But here's Jonah, and his job isn't to be the bearer of bad news. His job is, you go out and fight, and God's going to give this land back to us, to his people. And he got to be the good news prophet. You keep that in mind, and you look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. The scripture says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's already come once. Go to Jeroboam, tell him to fight for the land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Read again what God told him to do. Be careful here. Go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against Nineveh. Why? Because their evil has come up before me. That's interesting, right? Because Jonah lives in a nation with a wicked king who does wicked things, who God sends prophets to, to say, you're wicked and your evil has come up before me and you need to repent. But that's not been Jonah's job, at least at home. Now God says, I'm sending you away from home to Nineveh and you're going to call out against that city because their wickedness has come up. Before me, and this bothers Jonah. This really doesn't set well with Jonah. He's he's comfortable in the role of bringing good news to his nation. He's not so comfortable when the task or the job assignment is take a message to the enemies of your nation. So, just to kind of put it in context for us, roll back the calendar. Let's go to September twelve. 2001. You're a prophet. God comes to you and he says, the day after the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center, he says to you, the prophet, I want you to go to the president of your nation and I want you to tell him, this is the word of the Lord, you go get the bad guys. Go get them. Bring justice on them. Most of us, on September 12, 2001, if we're the prophet and God says to do that, we say, I'm in. How do I get there? You're going to send a helicopter, limousine, you want me to walk? How do I get there? I'm in, I'll do it. But then imagine if God says to you, okay, September 13, 2001. Now I need you to get your passport and pack your bags, and I'm sending you to Afghanistan. And I want you to call out against the men who did this. At that point, you probably have mixed feelings. Going to Washington? Talk to the president? I'm in. Go to the bad guys and call out against them? Eh, Jonah's not so sure. And there's probably a couple of things going on in his heart and in his mind. On one level, he's thinking, the Assyrians are bad dudes, really bad dudes. They are violent, nasty, cruel, heartless. They will tear me limb from limb. And there's probably another part of Jonah saying, this could be even worse than being torn limb from limb. 
What if I go call out against them? I know how patient and merciful and forgiving God is. What if they repent and He forgives them? That would be even worse. That would mean peace and prosperity for our enemies. I'm all for peace and prosperity in Israel, but for the guys who are always attacking us and stealing our land and killing our people, he doesn't know. So he's wrestling with this call, and this is how it comes out. Look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I know you're all up on the geography of the Mediterranean world, but I'm going to put a map up just to remind you of what's going on here. You see Gath Heifer over on the right. That's where he's from. And you see he goes down to Joppa. The call is, turn east and go to Nineveh. And instead, he says, I'll take one ticket to the western end of the world. Like, this is not subtle at all. This is not, I'm just going to try to lay low. This is not, I'm going to go north or south instead of east. This is, I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction, and I'm going to try to get as far away from God as I can possibly get. There's a couple of things going on in his heart, and they should be obvious. He's wrestling with little g-gods. Maybe we could say one of them is fear. Fear of what might happen to him physically if he goes to Nineveh, this wicked place. Maybe another is actually, in a weird way, fear of success. Fear that he would actually go and he would call out against this city and they might repent. And he knows, we're going to see it later, he knows that God will forgive them if they repent. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want them to be forgiven. He wants them to have justice. And at the same time, in a a strange sort of way, he's wrestling with his old call. The last time the word of the Lord came to him, and he's saying, you know, God, I, I, I thought I signed up to be the good news prophet. Like, I thought I signed up to take the message to the king, you know, Amos. Maybe you should call Amos to go to Nineveh. Amos is always calling out against Jeroboam. Amos is used to this kind of stuff. He would be much better suited for this type of ministry. I think you got the wrong guy. Amos is the guy that should go call out. He's used to that. That's not my thing. It's not my, it's not my routine. And he's wrestling with these little G-gods, and he gets in a boat, and he tries to run away. You know that it was a bad plan to run away from God. And truth be told, Jonah knew it was a bad plan. He's on the boat. God sends a storm. The boat's rocking back and forth. It's in danger of sinking. Jonah's sleeping in the bottom, and they go wake Jonah up, and they say, hey, what's going on? Do you know what's, what's happening? Why is this storm here? And Jonah just sort of blurts it all out, and he says, I'm trying to run away from God. Who's God? He's the God of heaven and earth. And they say, what? How could you get on the boat with us? How could you not tell us this? What are we going to do? And Jonah says, there's only one thing you can do. Just throw me over the edge. And they do it. They take Jonah, they throw him over the edge, and the sea is perfectly still, and the boat continues on to Tarshish, to the western end of the world. And there's Jonah sinking down. And this is where, you know, famous Jonah, he gets swallowed by a great fish. And as he's in this fish, he has sort of a light bulb moment. I want you to read what he prays in Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. 
saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Look, Jonah's got an idea. Even as he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean, he's got some idea of how merciful God is. He knows God is really the one, not the men on the boat, but God is the one who threw me into this sea, and I deserve it because I was trying to run away from God. And yet even as he's sinking down to the bottom of the sea, he says, I know, I know I'm going to look again on your holy temple. He's calling out to God for mercy, and he knows what kind of God the Lord is. He's a God who is merciful and abounding in love. He's slow to anger. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain Idols, underline that phrase, that's sort of a light bulb moment for Jonah. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Saying, I realize these idols, whether they're statues or in your heart, are just vanity. Vanity. And I'm looking to you for mercy, and I understand that salvation comes from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from Jeroboam. It doesn't come from Amos. Salvation comes from Yahweh. And the light bulb goes off, at least to some degree, and he's spit up out on the land. We don't know exactly where. We don't know exactly how long this all took, but he's out. And the the story continues in chapter 3. God says, let's go. The call is the same. Go cry out against this city and look very carefully what we read in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The rest of the story doesn't make sense if you fill in too many details here. We try to fill in the detail that Jonah walked around town and he said, in 40 days, God's going to blow you up if you don't repent, so you better repent. But that's not what he said. That was not the call from God in the beginning. The call was, go cry out against the city. Tell them that judgment is coming. So he goes. He doesn't tell anyone to repent. He doesn't tell anyone there's going to be a second chance. He says exactly what God wanted him to. He cries out against the city and he says, in 40 days, God's going to blow you up. In 40 days, God's going to blow you up. And an amazing thing happens. The people of Nineveh listen. They don't convert in mass to worshiping Yahweh, but they listen to the prophet. And they humble themselves. And the, the scriptures say they stop their wickedness, and they're seeking mercy. It's an amazing coincidence of history, if you believe in coincidences, that the people in Nineveh worshipped a god, and his name was Dagon, and he was half fish, half man. 
Just a coincidence. Here comes a guy spit up out of a fish telling you to repent. They listened. And they didn't leave Dagon to follow the Lord, but they listened to his message. They believed that judgment was coming. And this is what we read in Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man, beast be covered in sackcloth and call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is where Jonah gets mad. Because he just walked up and down through the city, and he said, in 40 days, God's going to blow you up. He didn't say anything about a second chance. But he knew, all along, he knew, if they repent, God's going to let them off the hook. And if I preach damnation and they repent and God lets them off the hook, I look like a fool. Look what we read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3. We left off with God did not kill a whole city. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Now just keep in mind, He's praying to the Lord, the God he's already said, this is the God of heaven and earth, the one who controls the sea, the one who controls fish, the one who controls fish vomit. He controls it all. He's in control. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? I told you this is what was going to happen. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah has a life back home in Gath Heifer. He has people. Presumably he has property, a house, family. And here he is sitting outside of the city that didn't die, saying to God, who's in control of everything, I told you this was going to happen. It would be better for me to be dead than to be alive right now. Because you didn't blow these people up and because you chose to make me look like a fool. So you got a little bit of the little G-God of ego mixed in here where Jonah's just embarrassed that he said 40 days something's going to happen and now he knows it's not going to happen. And you got a whole lot of the little G-God of country where Jonah says this is not good for Israel. God could have taken our enemies down a notch by taking out their capital city and now he's just going to let them off the hook. It gets weirder, if you can believe it. We won't read all of it, but look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. He's already chewed God out. 
Jonah 4, 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. It's gone from weird to weirder. First he says, I told you this is what was going to happen. You should have listened to me way back there. He knows God's not going to blow him up. And what does he do? He says, well, I, I guess I'll go sit out there and maybe there's a chance. I mean, that speech I, I just gave to God was pretty convincing. I made some really good points in the speech. And I'm hoping that God listens to those points. Maybe God will come around and blow these people up. And if he does, I want to have a front row seat. I'm going to be there right on the east side of the city to see the whole thing happen. And then what was weird and just got weirder goes from just into crazy land. And as he's sitting there, God sends a vine. It's hot. In the middle of the desert. Sends a vine up over his head. And the vine is kind of nice. It gives him some shade and some comfort. And he kind of likes the vine. You can picture him looking up and admiring the vine and being happy about the vine. And then the sun comes out in the heat of the day and the vine withers up and it dies. And the end of the book, it seems like it has nothing to do with the rest of the story because the book ends with Jonah complaining about the vine. Like we've totally lost sight of fish and missions and evangelism and letting a whole city of people live. And all Jonah can think about, the only thing he can think about is, if I can't get that vine back, I'd just soon be dead. God, if you can't you can't give me that vine, just kill me right now. And you read that and you think, how small his world has become that all he cares about is a vine. How completely self-absorbed and self-centered he's become by following these little G gods and allowing them to dictate his actions and his emotions and his heart. And he's sitting outside of a city, waiting for God to blow it up, complaining to God about a vine, wishing for death. All because he's allowed little g-gods to have free reign in his life. Listen, little g-gods will always disappoint you. They will never deliver you, and they will always destroy you. You allow them to go unchecked in your heart, you will end up just like this foolish man sitting outside of a city hoping that God explodes a nuclear bomb on them and complaining that he doesn't have a vine over his head. And you look at Jonah in that situation, he is so pitiful. It's embarrassing. You feel bad that the story is even told. It's reduced him to less than human. To being less than human. And that's what a little G God will do to you. It will reduce you to nothing. It will turn you in on yourself. And it will make you do and say foolish things. Things like, if I can't have that vine over my head, I'd rather just be dead. And then, the strangest of all things, I told you it went from weird to weirder to you can't even describe it. Then it it just ends. That's it. And you're, you're left wondering as the reader, did the bomb go off? What did Jonah do? Did God send the vine back? Did he kill him? And it just ends. 
And it ends so that you think. And so that's what we're going to try to do as we wrap this up. Sin makes no sense. You've got to wrap your mind around that. You see this prophet sitting outside the city, pouting, complaining, lecturing God. He's acting like a total fool. And it reminds you that sin makes no sense. Does it remind you of Nebuchadnezzar riding the wave or the roller coaster up and down? We talked about him last week. Seems like he has a light bulb moment, then he goes back to his little G-gods. And it seems like he gets something, then he goes back to it. And it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And he just can't escape from it. It ought to remind you of Zacchaeus, who we talked about a few weeks ago, chasing the little G-god of money. And along the way, committing a thousand sins that a good Jewish boy would say, I'll never grow up to commit those sins. He commits every last one of them, just so that he can have the one thing that he thinks will make him happy. Sin makes no sense. You and I would like to think we'd never be reduced to Jonah status, complaining about something like a vine. But leave a little G-God in your heart unchecked, and that's exactly where you will be. What was he trying to teach Jonah? Number one, God is a patient God. He's trying to teach Jonah that he's patient. And Jonah knew it intellectually, but he didn't appreciate it, and it didn't move him to worship. He was patient. He's patient with the people of Nineveh. Do you know that after this repentance, right, nobody turned and worshiped Yahweh. They just sort of talk about the generic God, G-O-D, not Lord, all caps. When they turn and they, they stop what they're doing, and they get through the 40 days and they live, They went right back to their wickedness as soon as it was done. History tells us that. And do you know that God waited a hundred years to destroy this city? A hundred years. He could have done it right then when Jonah was there, and it would have been fair and just and exactly what they deserved. But there's a little bit of movement on their part, a little bit of spiritual something on their part, and he waits an entire century before he blows up Nineveh, before he sends destruction to this city. He's patient. He's certainly patient with Jonah, right? Would have been perfectly fine for the fish in the sea to digest Jonah. That would have been what he deserved. Or for there to have never been a fish in the first place. For Jonah just to die down in a pit of seaweed. But he's patient with Jonah. And here's Jonah at the end of the story lecturing God, complaining to God, whining about a vine that God gave him in the first place. And God is patient with him. He's patient. Hold your spot in Jonah and just flip back one more time to Psalm 103. Verse 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. Number one, I hope you know that. Intellectually, you understand that God is a patient God. Number two, I hope that you appreciate that, and it moves you to worship like it moved the psalmist. Because Jonah knew it. He knew how to answer the Sunday school question. He knew how to fill out the blank in his sermon outline. But he didn't appreciate it. And it didn't move him to worship. 
He didn't really have any understanding of how bad he was and how undeserving he was. So he had this mental category that, yes, God is patient, but it in no way, shape, or form changed the way he thought about God or related to God or talked to God. And I pray that as you sit here this morning, you can say, I know God has been patient with me. I know he has. I'm hard-hearted and I'm stiff-necked and I'm no different than the people of Israel. I'm no different than this malcontent prophet named Jonah. And I know that God has been patient with me in my life. God was trying to drive that lesson home to Jonah and he's trying to drive it home to us. Number two, our love for others ought to be like God's love for us. This was a major disconnect in Jonah's life. He couldn't see how God's love had impacted him And as a consequence, he had no love for other people. It was a major disconnect. You are left, I mentioned this earlier, you're you're left with a question at the end of the book. What happened to Jonah? What happened to him? Did he just sit there pouting? Did he go home and pout? Did he keep going east? You remember, home was west of Nineveh, and he's out on the east side of the city. Did he go east? What happened? We're not told in the text However, I think the fact that we have the text tells us that at some, some point the light bulb went off for Jonah. Like, he's the one who knows this story, right? He's the one experiencing all of this. The being thrown overboard and the sinking down and the fish and the going to Nineveh and what he said to the people and what he did afterwards sitting outside waiting for God to blow the city up. He knew all of it, and he wrote it all down for us. And I think you know that the light bulb went off at some point in time because when he wrote it all down, he made himself look like a goober. He didn't sugarcoat it. In the story, when you read it, you come away saying, okay, hero, God, villain, Jonah. He's the bad guy in the story. And I promise you this, nobody wrapped up with a little G God. No one with their heart set on a little G God ever tells a tale that makes them look like the villain. They have excuses. They have justifications. They have things that you just don't understand. Jonah doesn't give us any of that. He just tells a story that from beginning to end makes him look like a total wicked sinner. The light bulb went off. And he writes a story. Not to make Israel look good. Not to make Jeroboam look good. Not even to make Jonah look good. But he writes a story that makes God looked good. And he understood. At some point, the light bulb goes off and he realizes, God has been patient with me. And the love that he's poured into my life ought to be channeled into other people. And he made the connection. The last lesson is this. Jesus alone makes sense of this story. Jesus, if you think about it, is the true Jonah. He's everything that Jonah should have been but wasn't. Jonah receives a call on his life. And he's a little bit concerned at what might happen to him. People may reject me. People may kill me. People may laugh at me. People may hurt me. And he tries to run from the one who called him. Jesus receives a call on his life from the Father. And he's not wondering if he's going to be rejected, if he's going to be hurt, if people will laugh at him and say terrible things about him and reject him, he knows all of those things will happen. There's no wondering. And where you see Jonah running, you see Jesus being obedient. 
Becoming obedient and becoming a servant. Becoming obedient, the Bible says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that I might purchase our salvation. You see Jonah in this story thrown into a storm. And salvation comes in the most unlikely ways for Jonah. And you see Jesus at the end of his life not thrown into a a storm, but thrown onto a cross and experiencing, if you will, the storm of God's wrath against sin. And it all comes thundering down on Jesus. And just to make the picture clear to everyone standing there and those who would read about it, God sends darkness over this land. And yet, in the midst of that storm, there's life and there's salvation in the most unlikely of ways. The Bible tells us that Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish. And Jesus himself comes along later and says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Just as Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah finds himself in the belly of this fish, and what does he pray? The last part of his prayer, salvation is from the Lord. We talk about Jesus Somebody whose name means salvation is from the Lord. He's the true Jonah. And he came to this earth to live for you and to die for you and to save you from these little G gods that will turn you in on yourself. They will always disappoint you. They will always destroy you. They will never deliver you. And he's offering you life. He's offering you freedom. And my prayer for you this morning is that as you think about the little g-god of country or whatever the little g-god is that you're wrestling with, that you would see in this example of Jonah the possibility of forgiveness, that you would not see yourself as the hero of your story, but that you would see Jesus as the hero and you would run to him for life, for forgiveness, for freedom. I want you to bow and we're going to pray together. Father, we stop this morning and we remind ourselves that you are a patient God. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. We know that that was true for Nineveh. We know that it was true for Jonah. Father, we know that it's true for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus who came on a rescue mission knowing that people would reject him, knowing with certainty that he would give his life for the mission. Father, we thank you for Jesus who was in the, in the belly of the earth, dead and crucified for our sins. Father, we thank you for the sign of raising him from the dead and bringing him back to life. And we thank you for the hope that that offers us. Father, we pray that the little g God of country would not be something that we place in between us and you. And Father, if that's not the little g God that we wrestle with, if it's ego or success or children or love or money or whatever, Father, we pray for your grace, we pray for your mercy, we pray for conviction from your spirit. Father, and we believe that salvation is from the Lord. It's not from us. It's not from any good thing that we can offer you. But salvation is from the Lord. 
And that's our hope. Father, that moves us to worship. And so as we sing, we pray that you would be honored. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.